You're listening to the podcast of the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi folks and welcome to the show. Ohio Gozaimas from Tokyo, Japan. This is Richard Zink and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 50 and this is a big anniversary for the podcast which has been going strong since August of 2012. This episode features a conversation with current ASA president Lisa Lavange. We talk a lot about her varying career in the industry, in government, and academia, and her initiatives for statistical leadership as ASA president. As such, we have some special sponsors today. We are sponsored by the letters Alpha and Beta, and by the number Pi. Thanks very much to those sponsors. Before we get started, I want to highlight that you can submit proposals for roundtables and posters for the 2018 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop. Roundtable proposals are due March 15th, and poster proposals are due March 30th. Try to get those in on time. And as a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. Hi folks, for our 50th episode, I'm talking with Lisa Levange, Director of the Collaborative Studies Coordinating Center, Professor and Associate Chair of the Department of Biostatistics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Prior to that, she was the Director of the Office of Biostatistics in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. She's also the 2018 President of the American Statistical Association. Good morning, Lisa, and thanks for being here for the 50th episode. Good morning, Richard, and thank you for inviting me. Let's start off with the basics. Uh, How did you become interested in statistics? I was interested in math uh, as a child and uh, identified that as my favorite topic in high school. Uh, That's partly because I had a really good math teacher. I went to an all-girls high school in Nashville, Tennessee, And my math teacher, uh, my junior year, had a master's in math and was the first female that I met with a master's degree. (laughs) That was less common in the the 60s. This was the 1960s. Um, I went on to be a math major at the University of North Carolina as an undergrad and then to straight to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst to get a master's in math. And it was at Amherst that I got more interested in uh, computer science and statistics and decided I probably wanted a more applied field than um, theoretical math. So I stopped, went to work at Research Triangle, I stopped with a master's, went to work at Research Triangle Institute back in North Carolina, which brought me back to uh, friends and uh, colleagues in Chapel Hill again, and had a really wonderful um, time, uh, two and a half years at RTI, working uh, for NASA contracts as a mathematician, but then I started working on a healthcare survey Daniel Horvitz uh, was the executive VP and the um, principal investigator on a huge survey of medical care expenditures um, for the government. I got exposed to Dan Horvitz and other statisticians like Babu Shah, 
Ralph Folsom, Jim Cromey, and was uh, instantly smitten with sample surveys and statistics. With their blessing, I went back and uh, enrolled in the biostatistics department in North, at North Carolina in the School of Public Health and got my Ph.D. there and then uh, went back to RTI and started uh, resumed my work in large-scale sample surveys, eventually uh, got into the area of uh, coordinating center uh, for clinical trials, which led me to clinical trials for both the NIH and industry, and that went forward with the rest of my career. So those, those were the early interests. I think this will come up again later, but being exposed to a mentor of the stature of Dan Horowitz and others at RTI was instrumental in, in making me really fall in love with statistics and all of the problems that you could solve by applying statistics through your job. Can you give us a brief overview of your current role as the director of the Collaborative Studies Coordinating Center? And I believe you had this role just prior to your position at the FDA, correct? I did. I, I was at the Coordinating Center um, for several years before I uh, went to Washington to, to work in regulation. And now I'm back, and it's uh, really wonderful to be back on campus the coordinating center here at UNC is the oldest continuously funded coordinating center. It dates back to um, the early, very early 70s. Uh, got its start with the early cardiovascular trials. A lot of the uh, cholesterol-lowering trials and other cardiovascular and heart failure trials came through uh, the coordinating center here at UNC, starting with Bernie Greenberg, Jim Grizzle, Dale Williams, Ed Davis, Woody Chambliss. Those were the prior directors when I joined in 2005, so quite a rich history. The coordinating center has about 100 people. It is a, a center that provides all of the operations for large uh, multi-site trials, epidemiology studies, patient registries, and trial networks, including project management, uh, clinical site monitoring, statistics, the study design and analysis, um, data sharing, uh, informatics, data management, creation of public use data files, publication support, and pretty much a full service shot for clinical trials. We are typically uh, awarded a contract or grant with the NIH, primarily though we have other funding sources, some foundations and um, some private sponsors. But we, we usually, as a coordinating center, have a, an award, a grant, or a contract uh, independent of the clinical sites or epidemiological field sites. And that independence is important because we look to really to be uh, the objective partner and to help with the governance of the trial through the studies to set up steering committees and data monitoring committees or safety monitoring committees or observational study mm -hmm. monitoring committees or whatever is needed for the project. And then to provide support to the clinical investigators, we participate in protocol writing and study design, as I already mentioned, the trial conduct itself, the reporting. Many of our trials are run under uh, investigative new drugs with the FDA, so we are responsible for safety reports to uh, regulatory authorities in that case, and then all the way through to the analysis. We have, as a, a great example of what a coordinating center does, we have a very large study, of Ather Atherosclerosis Risk in Communities, or ERIC, A-R-I-C, that was first funded in the 1980s, enrolled a cohort of about 16,000 people aged 45 to 64. That cohort has been followed continuously to today. So we have 30 plus years of data 
on these folks and it's just an incredibly rich data set that includes genetics, brain imaging, uh, all of your usual clinical variables from repeated clinic visits and then continued surveillance for hospital discharge data and other uh, data gleaned from telephone follow-up. So that type of long-running, uh, large-scale, multi-site cohort study uh, as well as other types of clinical trials and trial networks are the bread and butter of a coordinating center like this. And right now, the two two of the projects that I worked on as PI when I was here earlier, one, the Hispanic Community Health Study, which is the largest study of U.S. Hispanics ever to be funded by the NIH. This one funded by NHLBI. It is uh, still going and just put in an application to bring the cohort of 16,000 Cubans, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Central and South Americans living in the U.S. back for their third clinic visit, and it includes follow-up for heart disease and pulmonary disease. That study is still uh, very active. Another, another example is a study in COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients uh, looking for biomarkers and intermediate outcomes that could accelerate drug um, development in this population. Really interesting study of 3,000 uh, elderly folks with COPD with lots and lots of biomarker measurements um, and database linkages. And that is, uh, is another effort that is still going on and just started uh, implementing the second clinic visit. So one clinic visit, three years of follow-up, and now the second clinic visit is in place. So those are examples of exciting projects that have that actually started when I was here uh, back in 2005 to 2011 and are still going today. And in addition, we have a new asthma trial network that's just getting started, and we have a adolescent medicines trial for HIV-AIDS prevention that uh, has been going on for about a year and a half. So lots of exciting things happening at the Coordinating Center. Yeah, it definitely sounds uh, very interesting. Uh, and I imagine for students, uh, it provides them a lot of opportunities for, for training and research and dissertation opportunities as well. Absolutely. We, we try to keep a dozen or so graduate students funded on our various projects because it is a really rich data source and, and lots of interesting problems about study design and analysis as well for, for their master's papers and dissertation topics. I imagine you're probably asked this question quite a bit, uh, but can you give us a, a brief overview of your role at the FDA and about your time there? Only a job like Director of Biostatistics in CEDAR would have pulled me away from UNC in the first place. <laughs> it, it is quite a job. It, it was just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. I directed the Office of Biostatistics for the Center for Drugs. That office contains all of the statistical reviewers for any new drug, generic drug, therapeutic, biologic, or biosimilar product that is uh, submitted to the agency for approval or for which a protocol is submitted uh, during the development stage under an IND. Um, when I joined the FDA, there were about 100 and there were 165 people in the office because of the Prescription Drug User Fee Acts passed by Congress. We had resources to hire additional reviewers so that we could keep to some accelerated approval pathways that are really designed to get drugs in areas of unmet need to the patients faster. So we had a, a rec big, big recruiting push um, starting about the second year I was there, and we ended up with 50 uh, additional statistical reviewers on the staff. About, we were about 216 when I left and still recruiting. <laughs> so that was one of the major accomplishments. 
But it's a big office. It's got a lot of responsibility. A very high impact job. The the uh, the lure of working at a at a place like the FDA is just the the opportunity you have every day to make an impact on the lives of so many patients by ensuring that safe and effective medicines are there in areas where they're needed. The um, other part of the job, of course, is interacting with all the other disciplines in the Center for Drugs. So every drug has a statistical reviewer, but it also has a clinical reviewer and a pharmacological reviewer. The drug substance and the manufacturing facilities are um, put to scrutiny. They go under scrutiny as well. Lots of people trying to make sure that the pharmaceuticals out there are safe and effective and of high quality. So it's a multidisciplinary organization. It's a an ideal place for a statistician to work. You get to work with so many different people with different areas of expertise. You learn quite a bit about each disease area. Um, you learn about the pharmacology of the different molecules and their mechanisms of action. You even learn about the manufacturing process, um, especially when you're looking at generic drugs and biosimilars that need to be very close to the innovator product that they're um, created from, so to speak. You know, just a lot for a statistician to learn in a very exciting workplace. It's, it's fast-moving. You know, things come in every day, new drugs and so forth, and lots to do. Everybody's very busy. And even with all of the regulatory responsibility, our staff found time to actively research projects. You know, you get exposed to lots of types of study designs through the protocols you review. You get exposed to lots of analysis methods. You also know where the areas of unmet need are, where the where there's a real need for innovative medicine. And so you have opportunities to um, do research and speak in public settings and engage uh, statisticians and in industry on new kinds of trial designs or analysis methods that might be beneficial to drug development. And, you know, both from the standpoint of trying to accelerate getting good drugs to the market, but also identifying risk that might not be obvious uh, to make sure there's nothing unsafe, uh, try and minimize the risk of patients exposed to drugs. So opportunities for research, um, professional development, our staff were very active in that. You can imagine there's quite a lot of data at the FDA, so there were also opportunities to look at data sets across drugs in a particular class, for example, to see if there were patterns in effectiveness or patterns in risk, maybe in certain subgroups. The FDA is really uniquely positioned to do quite a lot of, of um, analytics in, in respect to both how drugs work and what risks are associated with them. So that was fun. We, we had uh, folks who got involved with a lot of pretty complicated meta-analyses and other types of data exploration, so to speak, uh, to uncover patterns that could be beneficial to the public health. It's a big job. It's a very exciting job. And I just really enjoyed the, the six years that I was there. And you mentioned uh, growing the department uh, is, is one of your big accomplishments. Are, are there other accomplishments during your tenure that uh, you'd like to highlight? There were a couple of things I set out to do, some based on my views of the FDA actually working from the outside. I spent about 10 years uh, in the pharmaceutical industry and had dealt with the FDA as a as an outsider. <laughs> and so I had some ideas of things that I thought needed, you know, attention when I got inside. Of course, once you get into a job, you realize, you know, things may not be all that you thought they were on the outside or you might find other problems that you want to address. But the things that I really am proud of uh, had to do with the, the policy 
and our implementation of the policy. I felt very strongly both before I got there and after I got there that we needed to better articulate statistical policies, um, what was acceptable, what study designs were acceptable, what analysis methods were acceptable, were trials that required simulations to evaluate their operating characteristics, were they acceptable or not? I felt like there was a bit of confusion. There was some confusion about adaptive designs and what we would accept and not accept. There was still some outstanding questions about non-inferiority trial design. There were just several areas where I thought we could do a better job articulating our policy. So I worked really hard to try and get some guidance documents developed to start some other new guidance documents. It's a very long process um, because of all the review and different voices that need to be reflected and then the approval. It takes a little bit of time before you can publish something like a guidance. But I worked hard in that regard and then just internally worked hard to try and make sure that the stat reviewers supporting the different medical areas were consistently applying um, the policies that we did have established so that, you know, one type of study design wouldn't be considered acceptable in one therapeutic area and not acceptable in another, another therapeutic area unless there was a real difference in the therapeutic areas that would call for such a, uh, an inconsistency. So I worked on the uh, getting policies to be clear and articulated to our spon the sponsors so that they would know what to expect, uh, which, you know, in and of itself saves uh, time and resources, and it's the patients that you want to benefit here. So there's no reason to run a trial uh, when you're not sure what, you know, what's going to be accepted on the other side. Uh, it's just not, it's not fair to the patients. So I worked on that and, the, you know, trying to make sure we were consistently applying the policies that we did espouse at public meetings. And then I tried to focus on some areas that I thought were particularly in need of, of good, good drugs, but the rare disease space, where it's very challenging to run um, large randomized trials. And so what can constitute substantial evidence in those cases? It's a tough question. And so I spent a lot of my time on rare diseases, um, and I'm very proud of some of the progress that we made uh, with drugs in those areas. And then I spent time on some particular places, like, for example, the uh, antibiotic area, especially with drug-resistant pathogens, which is a critical public health crisis right now and is something that needs a lot of attention. And I think we had some good success. We had a couple of statistical meetings in public settings where people could talk about what could be done to help with smarter antibiotic trial designs and uh, talk about evidence and so forth. So I'm proud of that, and I guess the last thing I'll mention, although there's, you know, the work of my staff, the staff there was just so incredible. Uh, people were so hardworking. I mean, I'm, I just was proud every day I went to work uh, at what the staff were accomplishing. But if I think of one other particular project, it would be getting involved in, in trying to push forward the use of collaborative trial designs uh, that involve multiple sponsors. And these are sometimes called master protocols. This was something Dr. Woodcock, the center director, had advocated years ago in the early iSpy2 cancer trial, breast cancer trial. And that particular setting, neoadjuvant breast cancer, was a, a good environment to have such a collaboration and has really been quite fruitful. And that idea of a master protocol or a continually running platform trial where New drugs are added and other drugs uh, go on for further development or are stopped for futility um, with multiple sponsors contributing their molecules. That type of setup, we pushed for um, the antibiotic area. 
as well as other disease areas, even uh, neurology, a particular rare form of Alzheimer's, for example. I think that that work, you know, is something the FDA is really, again, uniquely positioned to do because we work with all sponsors. We work with the patient advocacy groups and we try to find ways that we can help improve the lives of patients by getting sponsors to work in a, in a smart way. And, you know, it's the belief, uh, at least of Dr. Woodcock and myself and many others in CEDAR, that these master protocol collaborations are, are one such way to accomplish that. These uh, collaborative efforts in the industry through these protocols and other uh, initiatives like the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, Transcelerate, um, trying to build efficiencies and, and collaborations between different sponsors to sort of streamline the processes has certainly been beneficial. And I am sort of jealous at um, the amount of data and information the FDA does have available to, to at its fingertips to sort of examine. We talked about some of the positive things. Uh, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges during your time at the FDA? Well, I was new to the government, <laughs> and work, I, even though I had worked for the state government at UNC, being a public university, I had not worked for the federal government. So I had quite a lot to learn about the whole civil service environment. I'll have to say that I, I when I come into a new job, I always... I'm anxious to, you know, get to work on things and identify problems and try and and fix those and identify areas where new initiatives are needed. And working in the government is not always, things don't always go as fast as you would think that they would. So I had to learn patience, <laughs> uh, which has never been my strong suit, but I, I had to really uh, work on it when I was at the at the government. That being said, you know, it is possible to do great things in the government, as happens every day at FDA. But it was a challenge for somebody coming in later in their career as I was and then having to, to learn how to work in it with uh, the government bureaucracy that is there. Um, I think the other challenge was just trying to figure out, sort of feel my way through the position of statistics at the FDA. Thanks to Bob O'Neill and others that were there before me, statistics is actually has a very good position in that um, the stat reviewer is, you know, considered equal to the clinical reviewer, the pharmacology reviewer. Each discipline is very much respected. There's an equal voice policy in the Center for Drugs where every discipline uh, has a, an equal voice in, in their review of the drug so that it's a, it's a real collaborative space. And that was very nice. Uh, the challenging part uh, came more from there being lots of people looking at the data sets and lots of different sort of data analysis results uh, being on the table and trying to uh, learn how best to convey what the statistical reviewer was particularly good for, you know, what our value was, basically. Mm -hmm. What is the value added of a statistical reviewer when when everybody can analyze the data? Uh, what is it that we bring to the table? And people that have heard me talk know that I think it's important that we bring a, a real appreciation of uncertainty and attention to quality, uh, an attention to robustness of the analysis, the rigor with which uh, data are collected and analyzed and so forth. And, and it sets us apart a little bit, but this is, I mean, this is not just at the FDA. This is everywhere, I think. We're a data-driven world right now. <laughs> a lot of people are analyzing data, and statisticians are, you know, put in a position of trying to uh, differentiate themselves, basically, and just, you know, be able to communicate 
what it is that they're that they're doing and that their results are and how they're interpreting the data and so forth. Uh, what they bring to the table is is important to convey. I did get reinforced a lifelong belief that uh, what we do is not of any use to anybody if we can't communicate it well. And that was probably never as true as it was with the FDA. Communication was everything. If you want to influence an approval decision, you do have to be able to communicate um, the findings of your review. And so we worked on that. Uh, it was one of the offices' um, initiatives constantly to work on verbal and written communication of our reviewers. And it was an initiative basically throughout uh, the Center for Drugs for that matter. Communication is definitely uh, key to being an effective statistician. And uh, I, I think we'll talk a little bit about some of that later. And probably an underdeveloped skill um, that we could spend more time on in, in writing and presenting and speaking. But um, you, you've had a varied career, and, and we've talked a little bit about it. You worked in academia, uh, in CROs, um, quintiles and its uh, various names, and I guess RTI might fall under that uh, umbrella. Um, you've been at small pharmaceutical companies, uh, academia, and the government. And I think this is one of the benefits of being a statistician, our ability to sort of work across these different areas in academia, industry, and government, and potentially switch between them. And did you knowingly uh, sort of set out in your career to have such a, a diverse work experience, uh, or is it just something that sort of happened along the way in terms of the opportunities that you were uh, presented with? <laughs> So uh, I do get asked this a lot. <laughs> I have had wonderful opportunities, um, and I can honestly say every position that I've held, I have learned an incredible amount from. I've enjoyed it, always been surrounded by really wonderful people in the workplace, um, and every time I've changed positions, it's because an opportunity has come up to learn something different or tackle a new problem. Uh, I, have, I truly have made no job changes because of, you know, actively looking. Um, it's basically just an opportunity coming to me and me uh, taking advantage of it. And I think that is very characteristic of the life and career of a statistician. We can do so many things and we can work in so many places. <laughs> ASA has a really nice poster uh, that says that one of the great things about being a statistician is we can play in everybody's backyard. I used to say that we're the utility infielder on a baseball team. <laughs> so it it's just, uh, it's really, I, I feel like I've had kind of a blessed life in that regard. I spent 16 years at RTI, and I learned, as I've already mentioned, so much from the uh, talented folks there. So many of my early mentors, my first management position was there, my first uh, serious training to be a manager and supervisor uh, was provided by RTI. And, you know, I moved over to uh, the two jobs I held in the pharmaceutical sector because I was interested in clinical trials and thought, well, I've worked on NIH trials. I think I'll try some pharmaceutical trials. <laughs> Great learning opportunities there, uh, as you said, both in a very large CRO where I got to climb up to the level of vice president and learn about managing multiple offices and dealing with global operations. And then moving to an opportunity at a small company where the Leadership took a different direction because I was able to uh, be more involved in the business side of leadership and to strategic planning and uh, decisions about portfolio management, something that was pretty unique to a small startup company. So just ter tremendous learning opportunity. 
and then making a move to academia where probably I thought I would stay till retirement was fun because at that point in my career, I'd, I'd worked a lot. I'd been in the private sector for all of the 25 years at that point. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I have some knowledge accumulated. Maybe I can teach. <laughs> so maybe it's time to impart my knowledge. And I did. Uh, we already talked about working at the coordinating center. But while I was working at the coordinating center during those years, I got to teach uh, clinical trials with Anastasia Ivanova, which was fabulous. It was a brand new doctoral level course in clinical trials. And I I tell people jokingly that Anastasia would tell the students how things should be done and then I'd stand up based on my experience and say, okay, let me tell you, here's what really happened. <laughs> and we had kind of a back and forth in the classroom that I think was, was fun to do and I think the students enjoyed it and learned a lot from it. I also taught the STAT consulting class, which Kant Bengdawala and I co-taught and revived really along the lines of our chair, Michael Kasarak's course from uh, Wisconsin that he brought with him. And then finally, Bill Salicino and I developed a statistical leadership course for our about-to-graduate Doctor of Public Health students, and that was just a real wonderful teaching opportunity. And as I mentioned earlier, only a job of the stature of the FDA Director of Biostatistics would have enticed me to leave my, my very nice and exciting uh, academic job uh, for a few years. And, you know, that, that was just another opportunity that presented itself. So I think if, I mean, jumping ahead, if I was going to advise students, first of all, I, I give lots of talks to students whenever I can about even down to the high school level. I go back to my, my girls' school in Nashville and give talks fairly often. And I always try and plug math and statistics as, as fields. If you like that area, if you like quantitative methods, uh, those degrees set you up for lots of different career opportunities because they're just so useful in so many areas of application. And then I, you know, what I do mostly is meet with students, grad students or undergrads, and talk to them about the positions I've had, the pros and cons of the different sectors I've worked in, and try and help them find, you know, where they might want to go. I don't have any particular wisdom as much as I just have lots of stories and uh, experiences that I can share. And maybe something I say resonates with them and helps them decide what position to take or what graduate path to pursue. We brought up an interesting point with the clinical trials class that, uh, yeah, there's often a, a, a difference between you know, what you learn in the textbook versus what you actually learn doing the job. So I think the students uh, having that perspective of, uh, from you and, and Anastasia Ivanova, um, I think that's a, a great place to be in to have uh, both sides of that coin. So, do you think there's any transitions between academia, uh, industry, or the government that may prove more challenging? Yeah. I think maybe traditionally people think of academia. There, there's this need to publish and publish in uh, particularly important journals. Uh, do you think that may make it more difficult to go into academia from industry or government or? Are, are there any skills that are necessary to, to make certain transitions easier if you do want to make a career change? I just have a couple of points on this topic. It's a good question, thanks. I remember when I was working in the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and moving up the ladder in terms of responsibility, my advisor and mentor, lifelong mentor Gary Cook, 
who I credit with a lot of things that have happened to me uh, career-wise. He gave me some really sage advice. He said, you know, you can take on more and more business responsibilities, more and more management supervisory responsibilities, more and more administrative duties, but always hold on to the technical work. Make sure that some part of your day, some part of your job is is in the technical work because that's what makes a statistician unique and uh, keeps you very valuable in the workplace. And he didn't at the time say, you know, that's also what will help you transition if you if you change um, jobs in in your career. Um, but it in fact is, I think. Uh, so even when I was at the highest position I was at it, at Quintiles, which is probably the position of the most responsibility I've had when I had about I had five offices of statisticians and programmers and other folks. You know, I always made sure that I had a couple of projects, uh, new drug applications or post-market studies, something challenging that I was working on actively, protocol writing, analysis planning, analysis and publications, make sure that, you know, 20, 30% of my time was technical um, and that I never went to 100% administrative because I think Gary was right. And even, you know, if you could only publish a paper or two a year, just having that continual contribution, that continual attention to the profession and the science of our profession it really adds, I think, to your value and gives you flexibility uh, if you do want to pursue something like an academic career later in life. The other, the other point I'll make is in the academic world, uh, there is a, I think, more recently now, there's an increasing appreciation for what practical experience brings, not just to the classroom and the student advising and mentoring, but also to the research projects on campus. And so twice now I've moved into academia from a very non-academic sector and it's uh it's been okay. <laughs> uh, I haven't, you know, I I clearly don't have an academic CV as someone who has been in academia uh for their entire career, but you you have trade-offs. You have some important publications and then you've got a lot of practical experience and you you put the practical experience to work on campus, and it's important. And I think I think uh, med schools, public health schools, even colleges of arts and sciences appreciate what you learn on the outside and are making room for those types of faculty members to join. Sometimes it's through different um, tracks. When I first came to academia, I was a professor of the practice, which reflected my 25 years in in, pri- in the private sector. So, you know, that that's happening as well. But I think I think those are the two thoughts that I would share on that topic. Well, thanks for uh, particularly that first point. Uh, that's probably the first time I've had somebody uh, articulate that to me about trying to maintain some level of technical work, no matter how high you climb. Um, so that's definitely uh, something I think we can all appreciate and, and, and use going forward. So I need to say congratulations on your election as president of the ASA. Today, uh, this year is uh, 2018, will be your active year. Uh, what initiatives are you hoping to accomplish this year as president? Each ASA president uh, identifies initiatives during their president-elect year that they uh, hope to be able to roll out in their presidential year. So I spent a good part of 2017 talking to past presidents and others, um, Ron Wasserstein, the executive director, and uh, one of his staff members, Donna Lalonde, have been just tremendously um, helpful in 
talking and listening and trying to help me make initiatives out of my thoughts and wishes and so forth. Uh, I identified two initiatives, one a pretty big, and it's to establish a leadership institute at ASA, the idea being to um, provide a home for professional development activities and to uh, expand, greatly expand the resources and tools available to our members who are interested in pursuing a leadership position at some point in their career or already have but want to go to the next level in terms of leadership. So we're, we're, we have a steering committee in place, and um, the February Amstat News article gives you an idea of why I picked that as my initiative, the President's Corner in the February issue, and there'll be more to read about that as the year goes on. It's ambitious, and we'll see how far I get this year. Um, but I do hope that we that we get a couple of concrete projects underway. The idea is that the institute will sustain; it won't go away when I stop being president. And um, I've got good staff support with Donna as the liaison, so I'm very excited about it. I, I think it it can be a real plus and and offer quite a lot to our members. The other initiative is very specific but very important, and um, it came to me through Ron Wasserstein actually had the idea and then I had a couple of people reach out to me independent of Ron and so together we thought it would make a good initiative and that's to provide particular training and mentoring for statisticians who are asked to be expert witnesses in a a trial setting. Uh, This seems to be happening more and more, lots of different opportunities. Sometimes it's a liability case. Nowadays it could be a gerrymandering case. (laughs) There's any number of reasons that um, statistical experts are needed in litigation. And it's a a different kind of thing to do. Uh, Your your graduate school training and even your on-the-job training might not have you well prepared. Uh, And so if it's something you want to do, we want to offer to be able to put you in touch with people experienced in that and possibly offer some training modules to a cohort uh, in 2018 uh, that are interested in getting trained right now. And and again, that came to us because we had members who had been tapped and wanted to be able to serve as an expert witness but just needed some help. Uh, so we thought we'd do something more formal. So those are the two uh, presidential initiatives. I'll mention there's there's so much going on at ASA right now. and. There's a couple of areas that the ASA has initiatives that I'm very much embracing. One is to try and reinstill confidence in federal statistics. We're, we're, we're in this time right now when people question, um, they question news, <laughs> they question the media, uh, they are even questioning, you know, things like the unemployment index or unemployment rates or consumer price index or things that we just always took for granted as everybody knew these numbers were the best they could be and and high quality and statisticians uh, produce them and stand behind them. But now you've got this public, many of the public are not trusting of these things. And so trying to to get back to where federal statistics are um, appreciated and, and understood for, for what they bring to the marketplace. I mean, this is, this is really something that affects not just government, but um, businesses as well. The AFA has, has an initiative to reinstill that confidence, and that's something I hope to be able to support during this year. And likewise, there's a lot going on with the whole topic of data science, which I think is, is very exciting, and how, status, how statisticians play in a world filled with data scientists or data analysts, what that degree means, what that field means, who are the leaders in that, how are the statistical leaders dealing with workplaces full of data scientists. 
uh, that may or may not be statisticians. You know, these are all questions that I think are just fascinating. But I think, and I think they're challenging. And I think we have a lot of work to do. And ASA is looking at data science in a lot of different ways. And and I I'm excited about working on that during 2018 as well. I wanted to ask you one more quick question about the uh, the the leadership institute. Do you see the Leadership Institute as, as being something that provides sort of internships to statisticians to learn leadership roles, or would there be classes that statisticians could take, say, at major conferences like uh, JSM, that uh, they would uh, take a number of classes and get a, a leadership certification? How, how, how do you envision this working? The steering committee just had a, their first face-to-face meeting in January, and we talked about exactly that. Since 2014, the ASA has offered a workshop on leadership at JSM. It's a workshop that spans two days. Uh, It has a lot of really good components in it, but you can't teach leadership in that short a period, obviously. It's probably better characterized as a workshop on leadership awareness. It it makes people aware of, of the components of leadership, how one trains for leadership, the fact that leadership's a lifelong learning process, and, you know, the different places that one might go to to acquire the skills that, that someone may feel like they need to, to be stronger in, uh, to, be a, to be a good leader. And it, a lot of it is sharing career stories from uh, current leaders. I, it's a wonderful workshop. What the steering committee has taught quite a lot about is what's the next step after that? What can we do after that workshop? Can we establish a cohort and bring them back together at a couple of points during the year and offer some leadership training with web-based modules or, you know, uh, as you said, courses and other conferences and so forth. And that's, that's exactly what we're, we're, we're going over right now to try and figure out what we, can, what we can have a dry run for in 2018. But I think it'll be something along the lines of, of re-engaging the folks from the JSM workshop and, uh, and having more of a, a year-long program with, with, with different points where you meet and uh, interactive things in between. I, I don't have too many more specifics yet because we're, we're still in the brainstorming stage. But uh, as, as this stuff develops, as our plan gets more, um, as our plan gels, <laughs> then I'll be peppering my AMSAT news articles with little highlights as the year goes on. Well, no, that uh, that definitely sounds exciting and like uh, definitely great opportunities in the future. So I'll be looking forward to see what comes from the committee. Uh, just a, a, f- a few more final questions. Uh, just we're almost out of time. Uh, you talked a lot about the initiatives of the ASA and, and statistics. Uh, do you have any predictions or thoughts about any major changes Um to the ASA or the field of statistics in, in the next several years. And certainly there's been a lot of talk and discussion in the last couple of years about the p-values and overuse of p-values. And the ASA has a new conference uh, talking about statistical inference. Do you see changes in how statisticians may fundamentally do their job or how they may interact with other disciplines? That's a question that could take another hour to answer. <laughs> I think you raise a, I mean, you obviously raise a real touchstone here, the whole p-value um, uh, controversy. I guess it's a controversy. I, 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 I really love the fact that ASA took a leadership position here with the statement on p-values. That was a lot of work. 
convening all of those great minds and statistics to come together and and develop that. And you know, anything that's published with as many commentaries that got published along beside it as that did, that statement did, has to be important, right? It really started a dialogue in the the SSI, the Symposium on Statistical Inference that uh, happened last fall was such a good conference. It was really, really fun to go and hear all these people talk about evidence and what constitutes evidence. I think these are all really healthy discussions. I, I think, you know, I was at the FDA at the time. P-values and evidence are critical to everything that happens with drug approvals. I really enjoyed the conversations because I I think that evidence goes well beyond one number, one inequality about that number, right? Less or greater than or less than 0.05. Sure. Just the ability to, to take into account all of the evidence and then assimilate it and turn it into some decision algorithm, right? Decision. I mean, don't just get the p-value, but go beyond that, look at the evidence, and then come up with a decision about a drug or about a practice of medicine or something else. That's important. And statisticians are probably positioned very well to play a leadership role here in helping people understand what a p-value is and isn't and what evidence is needed and how one makes a good decision. And I, I just see it as an expansion of our, um, of our role on research projects and in regulatory agencies. Um, and I like it and I welcome it and I think that statisticians can rise to the occasion and, and lead the way here. That's one thing I'll say. The other thing is something I alluded to at FDA but that I, I think is happening everywhere and that's just that we're in this world of big data. Everybody's got big data, government, business, um, academia, and everybody's trying to get everything they can out of the data, as they should, uh, but in a smart way. And you've got data science and data analytics programs popping up everywhere from 12-week boot camps to uh, actual graduate degrees. And statistics departments and biostatistics departments have to figure out how they play in this area in academia as well as in the workplace. So if you hire a data scientist, do you need to check on the stat courses that they had or can you assume that they've got basic statistical training? What about computer science? What about math? I mean, those are the three disciplines that the ASA Working Group on Data Science came up with curriculum guidelines. Dick DeVoe led the group and they were published in a journal a couple of years ago. It's a great article if you haven't seen it, but it talks about the fundamentals of a data science degree being statistics, mathematics, and computer science. And then many people point out, well, you also need uh, business acumen so that you know what problem you're trying to solve and you know can do some business thinking about it in the end. Um, so maybe it's four disciplines. Whatever, we, we're part of that, right? We're part, we're part of the discipline and we also will be working and will be leading workplaces that have data scientists in it. So we have to figure out what what we're going to do there, right? What mm-hmm. we're going to do. Do we maybe we certify data scientists to, you know, certify them as having had sufficient statistical training. Is that something we should consider? That's been talked about at board meetings, uh, a couple of board meetings at the ASA. It's probably still on it's still on the table for discussion. I think, you know, the statistics profession is living in this world of big data. Um, I mean, Bob Rodriguez said it the best when he was president in 2012, the big ten of statistics. Basically, ASA should be welcoming, our profession should be welcoming to anyone who deals with data. 
we have something to offer there. Our profession does. And the ASA is the largest organization of our profession. So I think it's a challenge, and I think there's a lot that still needs to be discussed and thought about. Now that I'm back on campus, the other side of that coin is, okay, maybe we need more courses in data science, but our students are already taking lots of courses. <laughs> I mean, since I'm older than you, Richard, when I went to grad school, you know, we had wonderful courses, but we didn't have courses in statistical genetics or Bayesian statistics or machine learning. We didn't have courses in some of the things that are now offered. Uh, and, and statisticians, you know, have made terrific advances, leaps and bounds. So we have more courses and more more types of statistical uh, research that are happening. Uh, now we, you know, if we reach out and pull in more analytics and data science, I mean, you're going to hit the limit as to what a student can can assimilate in a reasonable amount of time, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of specialization that has to happen earlier on, to your point, in terms of the courses, um, say so, clinical yeah. trials or, or data science or big data or different kinds of coding. But I think we have to go there or, or we'll be left behind. So, so that you know, there's challenges in the teaching, there's challenges in the workplace, we just, you know, we just have to be aware of them and think, think about them and be smart. And I'm very optimistic. You know, statisticians bring a unique set of skills to any problem, and there'll always be a place for us. And I, I think it's going to be fun with all of these data people, <laughs> with all the, with all the people working with data. Sure. Uh, we just have to be thoughtful about it. Well, thank you for your time today, Lisa, and uh, again, congratulations being elected president to the ASA and all, all the good work you're going to be doing this year, and uh, and again with your work at the Collaborative Study Coordinating Center at UNC. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to uh, have this interview, Richard. It's always fun talking to you. I appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, episode 50 with none other than Lisa Lavange current ASA president and former director of the Office of Biostatistics in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA. I want to mention that I'm excited and we'll be having a panel discussion among statistics and data science podcasters at this year's joint statistics meetings in Vancouver. This session is tailor-made for the 2018 meeting theme, hashtag lead with statistics. It's format and nod to our social media age. Joining me will be John Baylor of Stats and Stories, Katie Malone of Linear Digressions, Kyle Polich of Data Skeptic, and Alexander Schott of The Effective Statistician. Look for the session in the online program, and please do try to attend. Check out the Biopharmaceutical Section website to see all of the interesting events that will be taking place soon. And time is running out for submissions for the Biopharmaceutical Section Scholarship Award. Applications are due on or before March 15, 2018. Up to three awards of $1,000 each will be announced in the summer. Finally, have an idea for a podcast or have a question? Send me an email at richard.zink at jmp.com. That's richard.zink at jmp.com. Until next time.